Why did the ancient Chinese civilization, which was one of the most advanced countries globally, around 1100, not maintain the pace and speed of technological and other progress after the 1350s, while at the same time still growing economically? This is the question that Mark Elvin is seeking to address in his book Patterns of the Chinese Past, and this is what we will deal with in this episode. In his book Patterns of the Chinese Past, Mark Elvin is trying to address three questions, the last of which we will cover in detail in this episode. But it is useful to look at the first two questions as they set the context for the third question. The first question he's looking at, and I will summarize his answer here briefly, is what are the causes for Chinese unity, Chinese imperial unity, in contrast to European political fragmentation. For instance, why did the Roman Empire fall apart while the Chinese Empire did not politically fragment, despite being subject to external conquest? Elvin is suggesting that the answer lies in China managing to keep an edge in different respects relating to its neighbors in terms of its first economic productivity, second the relative cost of administration and military defense relative to GDP, and thirdly technology in its most widest sense, that is organizational, economic, and military, as well as discipline. And a related question is, how come the Chinese Empire was so united and also at the same, same time so vast, so big? How could it maintain its size? And Elvin here is suggesting that the dangers or the threats of political fragmentation uh, were not sufficiently strong and long-lasting enough for China to break apart, but rather China managed to keep united and ahead of its neighbors in terms of technology, military, economy and organization. And even if it was in one area underperforming, it could make up for that underperformance by excelling in another area. And relatedly, the geographic unity and relative isolation of China and its cultural unity were concomitant factors that contributed but also were the result of the 
relative advanced position of China, ancient China, in terms of the factors of technology, military, economy and organization. Now, this is a very brief summary of Elvin's answer to the first question he poses, why China, ancient China was so united and so geographically expansive. And this lays the foundation for the second question, which is what are the reasons that led China to become one of the most advanced countries globally around 1100 and following? And Elvin suggests that the excellent position of China was the result of revolutions in science and technology, in market infrastructure, in social change, urbanization, innovations in credit and finance, water transport and agriculture. And he goes into detail exhibiting and illustrating the various aspects of these innovations in China occurring at that time in ancient China. And some contributing factors to these revolutions were also the unity of the empire. So in that sense, the answer to the first question is building towards the answer to the second question. And he finds that in terms of some technological aspects and innovation, the Industrial Revolution could have taken place in China prior to Britain, given certain empirical evidence as to the technological frontier that China was pushing at that time. However, the Industrial Revolution, which is one of the most impactful events of early modern history did not take place first in, in China, but rather in Britain. And that leads us to the third question, which is related to this question of the Industrial Revolution, although Elvin does not address it uh, directly, but phrases it in a slightly different way. So the third question, and this is the main focus of this episode, is why did China not maintain the pace of technological progress and related progress from the earlier period, which made China the most one of the most outstanding regions in the world, but at, this, but at the same time still growing economically in terms of total output, after 1350s. So in the 14th century, why was there this turning point where in terms of relative position, China could not maintain its technological leadership and then subsequently also economic leadership in the global economy. This sets the stage for answering and delving into the answer 
to the third question that Mark Elvin is posing. Elvin is suggesting that between 800 and 1300, there was a lot of scientific and technological innovation as mentioned above. Then in the 14th century, there was a turning point. There was on the one hand, economic growth and development. On the other hand, little revolutionary technological change. These big changes, including economic development and growth, quantitatively were keeping China in an advanced position in the world. And as Kenneth Pomerance in his book The Great Divergence shows, certain sub-regions, including the Yangtze Delta River area, the most advanced regions of the Chinese economy were still keeping pace in terms of capital and output per head relative to the most advanced parts of Europe, but without having similar technological developments. The 14th century, in other words, was a huge change in Chinese economic history. There was on the one hand development and growth, but at the same time these developments and growth turned out eventually to be blocking factors in the further progress of the Chinese economy. Specifically, Elvin is suggesting that the blocking factors were marking themselves by a filling up of the internal frontier inside China. So there was migration from North China to South China and South China was gradually filling up with people. And part of this migration was related to the change in the social structure in 14th century China, specifically the decline of serfdom. The move from a manorial landlordism where serfs are tied to the land, to a manor and a landlord, over to a social structure that was characterized by landlordism, where tenants were working on the land, but they were not necessarily serfs tied to a specific land, but rather could have some more geographical mobility. And relatedly, the huge social change was fueled by, but also at the same time leading to more migration and mobility. Second, population growth. Third, the development of rural markets and industries. And third, a more financialized and more rational organization by 
officials rather than landed gentry. The details of which are fleshed out in Erwin's book on the patterns of the Chinese past. Now, once you have the internal frontier filling up with people, the marker is a shortage of land, in particular, arable land. And one problem that Elvin is trying to suggest is that the mode of production did not allow China to overcome this shortage of arable land. In specific, he's suggesting that the, on the one hand, people active in commerce, markets and trade are separated from, on the other hand, the people related to production and technology. In other words, there was no involvement of financiers or traders in the development of new production technology or innovation. Therefore, there was little tinkering and application of new innovations to improve the production process, in particular in farming and agriculture. Therefore, there was a shortage of effective arable land. In addition, it can be mentioned that the relative surplus of labor, so the huge amount of people available, did not provide any economic impetus for labor-saving innovations and inventions due to the existence of this relative labor surplus. And the arable land shortage was part of a more general resource shortage. So the picture is that you have the south of China filling up with people and there's a shortage of arable land. The mode of production is not conducive to innovation in terms of labor-saving innovations because labor is in surplus. There's an abundance, a relative abundance of labor. And the arable land shortage is made worse by a general resource shortage. At the same time, the explanation that Elvin is trying to give for the turning point in the 14th century why China was no longer able to maintain its lead in the world economy is, in addition, uh, further exacerbated by an economic isolationist policy, which is restricting trade and overseas interaction and activity by the Chinese Empire. And this, what could be described as a policy mistake, implied consequently that there was no imperial overseas conquest and no enlarged foreign trade to make up for the demanded resources that were requested at home. In contrast to the overseas conquest and colonization uh, that was uh, actively supported by Western states in Europe. Mark Evelyn then goes on to 
suggests that the situation that is facing 14th century China can be best described as a high-level equilibrium trap. There's two parts to this. There is a high level and an equilibrium. And the equilibrium being negative, that connotation is captured in the name trap. So on the one hand, you have a high level. On the other hand, you have a negative equilibrium. And we can dissect these two parts. So on the one hand, you have a high-level equilibrium, which is indicated by the late traditional techniques and technology that is available to the Chinese was enough and sufficiently sophisticated that it could have spawned a industrial revolution. As Mark Evan is showing, for example, with the invention of the spinning wheel, Uh, that existed in some quite advanced but nonetheless rudimentary form in China several centuries before it appeared in parts of Europe. And this high level uh, of the high level equilibrium trap is also marked by the fact that the basic knowledge of science and technology seems to not have been the the bottleneck preventing China from advancing further economically. As he is suggesting that the, the use and the mastery of so-called pre-modern mechanical skills existed in China. However, there was a resource shortage that didn't allow China to overcome uh, this particular inhibitor to further economic development and growth. And this resource shortage, as we discuss in another episode in Kenneth Palmer's book, is suggested to be overcome by the West via imperial conquest overseas, but also via access to resources in terms of energy, specifically coal, that were present in the north of England. And these factors were absent in China. Now, what is making this... So we've discussed to what extent this is a high level. Now we can talk about to what extent this is a negative equilibrium or a trap. You can think about this as a what Mark Evan describes as a discontinuity in a sense that there is the further progress you make there needs to be some kind of a jump uh, a discontinuous change for further progress to happen and if this jump does not take place the natural resting place or equilibrium where things seem to be balanced does not allow the system naturally, other things being equal, ceteris paribus, to move to a different equilibrium. And these discontinuities, Mark Evan locates in two, two areas or two sectors. He first suggests that this trap or this discontinuity 
keeping China uh, relatively on a high level, still economically advancing in terms of quantitative growth, so the overall level of GDP is rising, but at the same time limiting its qualitative growth in terms of productivity increases, technological innovation, but also in terms of per head, per capita GDP growth. So the first discontinuity is in transport and markets. And he suggests that the, the level of transport technology, in particular water transport, was so efficient and so high that any innovation which would turn out to be later the case in Britain and Europe to be a huge impact to have a huge impact on uh, paving the way for the industrial revolution uh, was land transport in particular railways and in China the water inland transport was already so high that land transport um, may not have had such a tremendously large effect on raising efficiency in China relative to some other countries. And second, the discontinuity, one can add, also existed in markets. The rural markets and rural industry function so well in conjunction with the national transport network that what Mark Evan calls, quote, mercantile versatility, unquote, that these markets and this versatility of merchants and traders permitted China to overcome transitory bottlenecks of production, where, for instance, there was a resource shortage in one area to be overcome by this trading network and this interweaving web of markets allowed China to continue to grow in absolute terms, in terms of total output, but not necessarily in per capita terms, that is in per person terms. The other discontinuity existed in agriculture, according to Mark Elvin. And here he means the high productivity in farming that didn't allow China to continue to grow further and put a lid on its industrial growth because the productivity was high but it was using labor intensive techniques and to free up labor workers from the countryside to join uh, later what would be a late industrial revolution in the 20th century required according to Mark Elvin, the use of industrial scientific inputs, specifically chemical fertilizer, that were not existent in China at the time. And these would have pushed the productivity of land higher, which would have freed up labor for industry and reduced the oversupply of labor, which in turn would have changed relative factor prices, meaning uh, the price of a worker, the cost of a worker would have risen. And if the cost of a worker rises, then the entrepreneur has a microeconomic incentive to innovate and get involved in the production process 
more extensively to try to invent perhaps mechanical means for improving the production and relying less on labor. But because there was no industrial scientific inputs, such as chemical fertilizer, agricultural productivity was extremely high, but was at a discontinuum in that sense that it could not progress any further. Now, finally, uh, I like to add a third discontinuity, not just in transport and markets, second in agriculture, but also one could say perhaps in the economics or the microeconomics of, of technology. And this discontinuity, Alvin uh, describes in different words, but one could say that there existed merely private or microeconomic rational incentives that led to resource-saving innovations. Resource-saving innovations are innovations that use labor heavily but do not use resources such as land or capital so intensively. And it suggests that the incentives facing the entrepreneur and the peasant did not provide any impetus for efforts to be applied or tinker with labor-saving mechanization, which was the opposite in Britain. Now, later, this discontinuity in the economics of technology and innovation was solved via the developmental state, land reform and big push industrialization, which we see described in the book by Robert Allen, where chemical fertilizers, new seeds and irrigation all allow for the productivity in agriculture to be raised, where modern scientific inputs are used to raise agricultural productivity. And here, interestingly enough, the agricultural productivity is raised by using the outputs of capital-intensive industries such as the chemical industry, but they're used as inputs for a sector such as agriculture in China, which is relying on labor-intensive means of production. So a lot of hands or workers being involved in the production process. And this is in contrast to the development that occurred in India, where agricultural productivity in India was raised by relying on mechanization of agriculture, so not labor-intensive, but capital-intensive means to raise agricultural productivity, which was not necessarily conducive to using the relative factor abundance of labor and workers and peasants that existed in both India and China. So in that sense, uh, China raised its agricultural productivity in a similar way to Japan, but in contrast to India. Now, to summarize the argument so far, we have 
talked about China being a extremely advanced country on the global stage and in the 14th century there was a turning point where there was huge social and economic change which included the decline of serfdom migration mobility population growth the growth of rural markets rural industries and a revolution also in terms of the national administration uh, we here so far have not talked about the rise of the national examination system and the national consultation process and different ways of national management and administration which were all qualitative changes but in effect the 14th century despite this did not allow china to raise its per capita in total per capita output per head so in that sense there it was in mark evan evans words economic growth without necessarily qualitative growth so quantitative growth but without qualitative growth and this type of negative equilibrium despite being so a trap despite being at a very high level um, was something that china was stuck in and we can ask what was the trigger that allowed china to escape the trap and elvin is suggesting that the the escape from this high level equilibrium occurred partly from outside namely foreign invasion which provided new technology and forcibly opened up the country to international trade now one could modify this claim to suggest that the partial impetus for escaping the high level equilibrium trap that china according to mark elvin was stuck in after the 14th century up until the founding of the modern uh, prc and modern china is not just the influence of foreigners but also Uh, the fact of national development so as we've seen in the discussion by robert allen uh, invasion and imperialism are insufficient to create development so merely foreign technology foreign influence and foreign trade uh, are not necessarily a sufficient condition to create long-lasting development and this can be seen in india and its decline in its manufacturing industry after the british influenced india's national development and as is pointed out by robert allen the independence of the country so the national sovereignty of china which was assumed then later in the 20th century and then the subsequent adoption of a developmental state policy in addition to the big push industrialization the state-led big push industrialization which uh, we will cover in detail in norton's book on the chinese economy all combined to create the foundations of the continuing prosperity and growth of the 21st century as well as the 20th century Chinese economy.
So in a nutshell, uh, one can summarize the early modern and pre-modern Chinese economic history as going through different phases where uh, around the 14th century and before the 14th century, China was the economic hub, the center of gravity of economic activity in the world economy. It was at a very advanced stage of technological innovation in several areas, in farming, in transport, in science and technology, in finance, and so on. However, in the 14th century, there was a uh, turning point which led it, China that is, to continue growing, but not at a level that raised per capita outputs anymore. And this trap then was broken, this negative equilibrium was broken, uh, partly by foreign invasion, the opium wars and the forcible reintegration of China into the world economy, at least under the rule of uh, the unequal treaties, including the Treaty of Nanking, the Convention of Beijing, and so on in the 1840s. And this subsequently were these, these, if you like, these restrictions of further national development were then removed with national sovereignty and the adoption of a development the state policy and in the 1940s and then subsequent the big push industrialization in the 1950s and 60s and subsequently market reforms and the reintegration of China more deeply into the world economy uh, with the W2O entry. This is a very quick overview of uh, one particular hypothesis about the, if you like, ancient and early modern roots of Chinese, uh, of current Chinese economic uh, growth and prosperity. And we will examine a lot of these aspects of this hypothesis as well as alternative hypothesis in other episodes.